Daniel chapter 1, if you'll open your Bibles there. We'll start a new series today in the book of Daniel. If you're looking for Daniel, it's uh, page 775 in my Bible. Uh, There in the Old Testament. It's about 11 books back from the Gospel of Matthew. Um, And so uh, to the left of of Matthew, 11 books, you should find it. Anyway, all right, Daniel chapter 1. There's a lot of different ways that I can introduce this book of Daniel. It's a very important book, and and my temptation is to feed you with a fire hose, and I'm going to do a certain amount of that today as I kind of bring you up to speed of this book and start this new book. But I thought I would start with an illustration that just kind of brings us up to speed, something we can all relate to uh, and, and, and see, and so... Uh, I, I have friends all over the country that pastor different churches in, in, in different states and in different countries. And, um, and one of my friends in another state called me. We call each other uh, when we face a difficult situation. It's like, man, I need, you know, what advice can you give me here? And, and so, and, and it can be encouraging. So I had a friend of mine called me. He's like, okay, I got a situation I need to run by you. Well, it turns out he's got a guy in his church, been a member of his church for a while, and, and he, you know, kind of fairly, you know, regular attender, um, and uh, the guy just made some bad decisions and got himself in a lot of trouble. He just sort of got off track. He, he, he's a construction worker, and he's working, and he's coming home, and he's had a rough week and a difficult week, and so I thought to himself, you know what, I'm going I'm to grab a couple of beers on the way home. And, and so he, he pulled into the market there, and he, he got himself a couple of 40s, 40-ounce bottles of beer, uh, cracked them and drank them on his drive home, which all kinds of wrong. We don't condone that behavior. Pastor Rick, I think, addressed kind of our, our opinions here in, in regards to that last week. But nevertheless, this is what this guy did. So he downed 80 ounces of beer, which just in case you're wondering, is about a little over a six-pack, uh, on his drive home. Well, he's driving his com- company truck, he, he, you know, gets to the place where he's not keeping it on the road too well. He drives into the soft shoulder, loses, you know, traction, begins to fishtail, overcorrects, flips the truck, gets arrested for DUI. His employer fires him. This guy's life explodes, just completely begins uh, to tumble down. So I'm like, you know, no brainer. You're an idiot. You reap what you sow. You, that's what you get, you know, kind of thing. What other counsel are you going to get, right? Well, it's never that black and white. It's, it's complicated. This guy's, you know, my friend's his pastor. He's got he's to disciple him through, him through this, shepherd him through this, get him on the right track. And to make matters worse, I mean, put yourself in this guy's wife's situation because they lost everything. He, you know, not only did he, you know, lose his job and go to jail and have all that fun, but um, they had to declare bankruptcy. They lost their home, their dream home. They had both worked a couple of different jobs and, and saved for years to be able to build this home and, and all. They lost it all. And, and, you know, you're his wife. Just imagine being in that position. I mean, this guy's married. He's got kids. And, you know, I just, it's it's tough. It's complicated. King Solomon said this. He said that righteousness exalts a nation, but sin condemns any people. And, and anytime a leader of a family or a leader of a business or of a local government or of a national government, anytime that leader operates in a pattern of sin, 
Well, it ultimately commits and condemns the people that are subject to that leader, whether it's a home or a business or a government, to the consequences that come from their unrighteous, sinful behavior. And that's the case here. The case with this guy, he's, he's got to be, you know, sub- subject to his own bad decisions, but he's committed his family now to go through that fun with him. And they have to navigate through the consequences as well. And this perfectly describes the case here in Daniel. Because in the book of Daniel, well, Daniel's a historical account chronicling God's condemnation of the tribe of Judah, <coughs> excuse me, and the consequences suffered by the innocent as a result of decisions that their leaders had made. Now, the theme of the book of Daniel is the absolute sovereignty and dominion of God. That even though you can be somebody who has innocently been subjected to a very difficult road and a very difficult course of direction for your life, maybe uh, like this guy's wife who really had nothing to do with the horrible consequences she lived through, You, even in that situation, can trust in the absolute fact that God is sovereign over people, over nations, over events, over circumstances, and he has total and complete dominion. Now, the message that Daniel conveys is that it doesn't matter what your circumstances are or how you got there. Ultimately, God will have his purpose done in life, his will done in life, and his purposes will prevail. Romans 8.28 says that in all things, God works together for good to those that trust God and are the called according to his purposes. And to those that love God and are the called according to his purposes. So as, as you are maybe in a situation today, going through a difficult time, feeling very much like this wife feels in the sense that, man, I didn't pick this course. These things happened to me. I didn't have a lot of say in in this train wreck that I'm now a part of. Nevertheless, you can trust in the fact that God is sovereign. You can trust in the fact that his dominion is, is, is never in question. It's never encroached upon. It doesn't matter that bad decisions have been made and committed you to a course of direction in your life of consequence. God is sovereign over all of those things. Now, the big idea running throughout this book is that we can trust God no matter what. And it's not just a passive trust like, okay, God's in control and, and, and all. No, it's an active trust. And what we see in Daniel, the character of Daniel, who we're going to meet in this book, well, it paints a portrait of how to serve God faithfully in the middle of trial and how to persevere in hope even when there's no immediate, immediate solution that we can see to the problem. And some of you are there right now. Some of you, as we go through the book of Daniel, you say, you have just described my life. I'm in a situation, I'm in a circumstance, I'm, I'm subject to powers much greater than me, and, and I feel like a, a, a cork in a, in a tumultuous ocean. I don't know if you saw the, the, the video footage this week. It was actually on Fox News, and there was uh, somebody on a Navy, a huge Navy ship, had taken some video. They were in rough waters, and they're going through, and you just see these huge waves that are coming. And the ship, obviously, is huge. And it, nevertheless, these waves make the ship look like a, a little tiny, 
you know, cork in an ocean, man. And the waves hit the bow of this ship, and this volume of water comes and crashes into the widow or into the window with with such a velocity and power that it's it's humbling real quick. I'm sure that big ship got small in a hurry. And some of you, your lives feel like that. You feel like this big ship of yours just got small in a hurry. And what Daniel says is, man, you can have an active trust through the middle of that because God is sovereign. He'll take you through it. Now, in, a, in addition, not only uh, is it uh, the fact that God is sovereign, but in harmony with this major theme of God being sovereign and of God having dominion over people and events, Daniel is also a prophetic book uh, in the sense that it foretells the future hundreds of years in advance. Several of the prophecies in the book of Daniel have already been fulfilled, and many more have not yet been fulfilled. And, and so here's a book written by God that, says, that tells us what's going to happen hundreds of years in advance. And so many of these prophecies have been fulfilled that it's prompted critics to, to malign the book and to say, well, the book can't possibly have been written by Daniel in the 6th century AD when it was. They maintain, well, no, by, by virtue of the fact that it so accurately predicts the future, it almost certainly had to have been written by not just Daniel, maybe he wrote parts of it, but there probably were several other writers who contributed to this book after the fact that, that had the benefit of hindsight, and that's the only way that it could have possibly predicted so many events uh, correctly. Now, the critics of Daniel have two huge problems. They've got a lot of problems. They've got two huge problems. The first problem is that a copy of the man, almost the complete manuscript of Daniel uh, was found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, in the, in the Qumran Caves, uh, back in the, the 40s and 50s. And, uh, and in Qumran Cave number one, which predates the Maccabean era, which is when they maintained that a lot of this book was written after the fact, well, they, these manuscripts that they, that they got... They, they predate that. And so this just blows their theory out of the water. Well, look, there's proof. It was written uh, in the 6th century AD. And, and then the second, and, and what I would argue is the single greatest problem that these critics have, is that Jesus Christ himself, in Matthew's gospel and in Mark's gospel, quoted from the book of Daniel, and he attributed it to Daniel. He said, Jesus said that Daniel wrote it, and that settles all argument that Daniel is written a uh, message from God from the, from the past, predicting the future and nailing the bullseye and saying, here's what's going to happen. Now, God said this to the prophet Isaiah. He said, through the prophet Isaiah, he said, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I declare before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Jesus said this, he said, now I tell you before it comes that when it comes to pass, you may believe that I am he. And fully one quarter of our Bibles is prophetic in nature. And God does this on purpose. He says, let me prove to you I'm God. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen ahead of time. And then when it happens, I'm going to say, I told you, who else gets it 100% right? He says elsewhere in scripture, who else tells you what he's going to do before he does it? Nobody, not accurately. 
And so this here is God's authentication of, hey, listen, I am who I say I am, and I do what I say I'm going to do. Lots to learn here in the book of Daniel. Let's jump right into it. Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Now, Jehoiakim is the 18th king in a long line of kings in the southern kingdom. You have uh, in uh, Israel, in the nation of the Jews, you have the southern kingdom and you have the northern kingdom. See, what had happened was, under King David, the, the nation was united. Uh, and then David had a son, Solomon. And Solomon came into power uh, at a young age. And he prayed and said, Lord, let me have wisdom because this is too big for me. I don't want to blow it. And so would you give me wisdom so that I can responsibly lead this nation? And God said, hey, good for you, Solomon. You, you know, a lot of guys would have asked for riches and power and glory. And uh, you didn't ask for none of that stuff. So I'm going to give you all of that too, because you didn't ask for it. And I'm going to give you wisdom. And so the, Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived. But then he did some stupid things, which just goes to show you, it doesn't matter how wise you are, we're all human, we all make mistakes, and Solomon made some doozies, and they all kind of sent, he's kind of, <laughs> they centered around women. You know, Solomon liked him some women, man, and so he just, you know, he got himself a lot of, a lot of wives and a lot of concubines, and he married women of, of other faiths. And what happened was Solomon began to compromise, began to uh, build altars and shrines to the gods of, of his wives, and, and, and God was none too pleased. He wasn't happy. So what happened is in 1 Kings chapter 11, God came to Solomon and he said, you blew it, son, and because of that, I'm going to rip the kingdom away from you. Now, for the sake of your, your, your father David, I'm, I'm going to leave you with a, with a, with a couple of tribes um, and I'm not going to do this until after you die, but I'm doing it because you disobeyed me, you dishonored me. And, and so that indeed happened. And, and so it split to the southern kingdom, which was comprised of 10 tribes, and to the northern kingdom, which was comprised of two tribes. Now, the nor northern kingdom had fallen to the Assyrians about 100 years before we read this, and here now this southern kingdom is about to fall. And so it's the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, this 18th king uh, in a long line of kings in the southern kingdom. And Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came and he besieged Jerusalem, verse 2, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God, and he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. He's talking about the articles, the vessels, the gold and the silver vessels that go in the temple of God that are part of the worship ceremony of God Ultimately, because of the disobedience of these people, now desecration, these things that were once used to glorify and, and, and worship God are now moved into a pagan temple and used in the worshiping of false gods. Ugly, horrible thing that happens. Verse 3. Uh, then the king instructed Aspenaz, the master of his eunuchs, 
uh, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men, in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge, and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace and whom they might teach the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. And so here you have King Nebuchadnezzar of, of, of Babylon taking the children of those uh, that were from the tribe of Judah and now he's taking them in and he wants to convert them and he wants to bring them into a place where they worship his gods and where they serve you know, his interests and where he turns them from the worship of the true and living God. And this is actually a fulfillment of several prophecies um, in Isaiah 39, which, hap- which was 100 years prior to this, uh, you had King Hezekiah. King Hezekiah uh, was sick, and he prayed to God. And when he prayed to God, he basically said, would you heal me? And God miraculously healed King Hezekiah. And so when he healed King Hezekiah, um, he gave him 15 extra years. So I'm going to heal you. I'm going to give you 15 more years of, of rule and reign. And so it, what happened then was these emissaries came from Babylon. And they came ostensibly to, to tell King Hezekiah, hey, we're glad you're well and that you've recovered and all. And so King Hezekiah lets them in and he showed them everything, all the treasure that, that they had in the kingdom. And he showed them all of their armories there in the kingdom. And don't you know, these representatives from Babylon, they weren't good guys. They were bad guys and they weren't really caring about King Hezekiah per se. They were just want, they were casing the joint is what they were doing. And so it'd be the equivalent of some guy casing your neighbor and he's looking around and you go, oh, hey, glad you're here. Come on in. Hey, let me show you where, where, my, where the, my money's hidden. I hide my money over here. And let me show you, I got this awesome coin collection, man. Let me show you, it's over here. That coin right there, I found that coin, metal detecting, that thing right there is worth a thousand bucks. And I got a whole box of, of, and you just start showing them all the stuff in your house. And then you go, you want to see my gun collection? Let me show you where I keep my guns. This is exactly what King Hezekiah did, right? Not smart. And so he does all these things. And, uh, and so then the prophet Isaiah comes to King Hezekiah. He's like, hey, who are those guys? Hezekiah's like, ah, there's some guys from this distant, you know, land of Babylon, someplace called Babylon. And he's like, well, what did they want? Well, you know, they just wanted to wish me well, tell me they're glad I was well and everything. Uh Uh-huh. Isaiah says, what did you show them? Well, I showed them all the stuff. I showed them all of our treasure. I showed them our armories. I showed them all that stuff. And at this point, Isaiah became upset. And he prophesied, and here's what he said. Isaiah said to King Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and and what your fathers have accumulated until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord, and they shall take away some of your sons who will descend from you, whom you will beget, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon, and here a hundred years later, that has come to pass. 
Now, God warned them that this was going to happen. He also warned them through the prophet Jeremiah that they were going to go into captivity for 70 years in Babylon. See, what had happened in Leviticus 25, when God was preparing the nation of Israel to enter the promised land, he dictated to Moses that there be a Sabbath year of rest for the land every seventh year. And so the idea was Israel would have to exercise faith in God and trust that he would provide enough for them during those six years that in the seventh year that they would have enough to be provided for. This required them to walk by faith. And so in Leviticus 26, God gave them promises and curses regarding the keeping of the Sabbath. Here's the promises. He said, if you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and perform them, then I will give you rain in its season. The land shall yield its produce and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Uh, Now, here's the curse if they disobeyed. He said, I will scatter you among the nations and draw out a sword after you. Your land shall be desolate and your cities waste. Then the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths as long as it lies desolate and you are in your enemy's land. Then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. Well, that happened. They were disobedient. And so just as God said was going to happen. They're now taken captive and they had to have 70 years worth of Sabbaths to pay back. And so they went into captivity in Babylon for 70 years. Now the Bible says this, the Bible says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever a man sows that he will also reap. What you need to understand here, just in these opening verses of Daniel, is that the Jews had sown in unbelief and sin, and now what God had warned them was going to come to pass was, in fact, coming to pass. And a point of application for you today, and I just pray you write it down, is what are you sowing to? Right now, what are you sowing to? And don't be too hasty to answer that. Don't answer that too quickly because you might say, hey, you you know what? Well, it's obvious what I'm sowing to, Ted. I'm at church, right? So I'm sowing to the things of God. Yeah, and the man in my friend's church would have told you the same thing. He was going to church. He had his kids in youth group. But the truth is he'd been sowing the seeds of compromise for a really long time. That subtle compromise that just sort of creeps in. It's like rust. It just sort of rusts away and compromise. And one compromise leads to another. And ultimately, this man in my friend's church wrote a check that his family had to cash. And I ask you the question, are you writing a check today that your family one day is going to have to cash? What are you sowing to Well, as we continue, the story focuses on the young men who were taken. These young men who, by and large, were were, uh, godly men following after the Lord, finding themselves caught up in in the, the, the consequences of these sins, for the most part committed by others. And and what I want you to note in verse 4 is that it concludes with the fact that they were taken so that uh, they might learn the language and the literature of their culture. See, the, 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 the idea here is that the enemy, and I want you to write this down, the enemy is after your kids. He's after them. There is a full court press. 
See, what we see here is that this king, he takes these young men, and, and then what happens? He wants to teach them the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. And we continue in verse 5, and it says, And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank, and three years of training for them, so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. You see, and so this idea is the enemy, man, he wants to teach your children his language. He wants to teach your children his culture. He wants to feed them his delicacies. He wants to feed them of his wine. The enemy wants to do all of these things, and his objective is very clear. It is for the express purpose that he will change them and that they will serve him. That is the enemy's objective in your children's life, in your life. He wants to change you. Now, something very important, I want you to to look at this. We continue in verse 6, and and this is with that idea that the enemy wants to change you, wants to change your kids, wants to brainwash them, wants to take them from the worship of their God and turn them to worshiping him as God. And so what happens here, verse 6, it tells us, now from those of the sons of Judah... We're going to look at these godly young men. It says, first of all, we're Daniel. He's the star of our story. Now, the name Daniel, if you wanted to circle it nearby, you could write this. You could write, God is my judge. That's his name. Here's the idea, and here's what you're going to see as we go through this book of Daniel, that Daniel lived his life as God was his judge. He was consciously mindful of the fact that I will give an account of my life to God someday. The Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die and then to face judgment. And there will come a day, it is appointed for each one of us, when we will stand before the Lord, whose eyes are a burning fire, and we will give an account of our life. And Daniel, his name means God is my judge. And boy, don't you know, he knew it and lived like it. Now, among the sons of Judah were Daniel. And now here's his friend, Hananiah. Hananiah, if you wanted to underline that or circle it, that name means beloved of God. Beloved of God. Here's a guy, his very name means, you know what? God loves me. Do you know how powerful that is? God loves me. He loves me with an unfailing love. You know, when you share the gospel with people, it's, you know, so many people have this concept of God that it's like, I better do right because God's up there just with a hammer waiting just to nail me. No, he's not. God loves you so much. The picture of the prodigal son is the picture of, of, of God in terms of the father waiting, watching, just desperate for his child to come home. He loves you so much he would send his only begotten son to die for you. He demonstrates his own love for us in this as we prayed today that while we're yet sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. And so Daniel's friend, Hananiah here, his very name means beloved of God. I know that God loves me. This is my identity in my life. God loves me. Now he has another friend. His name is Mishael. And and, and Mishael, his name literally means who is as God. The idea being who's like God? There is none like God. He's he's perfect. It's a worshipful name. It's a worshipful attitude. This is his identity. I'm a man who worships the true and living God. And his his other friends mentioned here, Azariah. 
Azariah, again, you want to circle his name. It means the Lord is my help. The Lord is my help. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He's my help. I trust in him. Beautiful names, worshipful names, names that define these men as men who are anchored in God, who love God. Now, to them, verse 7, the chief of the eunuchs, this is the representative, the official, the, the guy who's doing the bidding of the, the king of Babylon, this, this uh, chief of the eunuchs gave names. Now, here, what's the point? He wants to change their name. He wants to change their identity. He wants to change who they are. So he gives them new names. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar. Belteshazzar means Bel's prince. Bel is a god of the Babylonians, and basically he's saying, no longer are you going to be a man who lives as God is my judge. No, 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 Daniel, no. You, Bel, Bel is, is, is your god. You are his prince. We want you to identify with a new god. Uh, to Hananiah, uh, he, uh, Daniel gave, gave the name, uh, to Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, uh, he gave the, the name Shadrach. Shadrach means illuminated by the sun god. And so here he's got, you know, Hananiah, who at one time, man, Hananiah's name was who is as God. Now what he's wanting to say is, no, 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 it's no longer you live your life like who's like God. We want you to live your life like, man, you're, you're illuminated by the sun god. This sun god has made you everything. All that you are and everything, it's because you worship this other god. And so uh, to Hananiah, he gives the name Shadrach, or to, um, uh, yeah, to Daniel, he gives the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, and to Mishael, he gave the name Meshach, right? Now, Meshach means who is like Shaq? Not Shaquille O'Neal, but Shaq. He's another god that they worship. Hey, you know, he's like, he's like that god. He's not like the true and living god. He's like that god. And he goes on, and to Azariah, he gave the name Abednego. Now, Abednego means the servant of Nego, another Babylonian god. Here's what I want you to hear. He wants to change their identity. He wants to change who they are. He wants to take these people, and he wants to teach them, hey, listen, man, I want you to learn my language. I want you to learn my culture. I want you to feed on my delicacies. I want you to drink my wine. I want to change who you are, and I want you to serve me. The enemy wants your kids. Can I tell you this is happening right now? There is a full court press to get to your kids. This is something that's been known for the, for the ages. Certainly, uh, this, king, this Babylonian king knew it. Listen to the German uh, philosopher, Arthur Schopenhauer. He's an 18th century philosopher. He said this. He says, There is no absurdity so palpable, but that it may be firmly planted in the human head if you only begin to inculcate it before the age of five by constantly repeating it with an air of great solemnity. Let me translate that for you. John Kennedy actually kind of said something very similar to it. He said, no matter how big the lie, if you repeat it often enough and back it with authority, the masses will regard it as the truth. 
You see, the thing is, is there is a full court press to get to the hearts and minds of our kids. And, and I, I have an ocean of information, and I, I was hard-pressed to cull it down, but I'm going to lose you in the ocean of information. So I'm just going to give you a couple of examples of what is literally hundreds of examples in our culture. I want you to consider the following Senate bill that was recently passed in California, Senate Bill 48. It was signed by Governor Jerry Brown in 2011, and this Senate bill mandates, it's the law of the land, it mandates that social science school curriculum now be taught to kindergarten through 12th grade that admires the role and the contributions of lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender Americans. Now, the law mandates, this is the law, it mandates that that the the new requirements of this SB 48 be implemented through supplemental materials, including handouts, homosexual biographies, classroom discussion, essays, and other homework outside speakers coming in with a pro-homosexual agenda, showing of videos, the, the participation in dramas, And because of this, all the public schools in California are now under the following orders. Listen to this. First of all, they want all textbooks and instructional materials to be positively promoting lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender Americans as role models. Children as young as six years old will be taught to admire these lifestyles. Children will be taught to support the political activism of these lifestyles. And teachers will be made to positively portray homosexuality, same-sex marriages, bisexuality, and transsexuality because, as they say, to be silent can bring the charge of reflecting adversity or promoting a discriminatory bias. So here's what that means. If you're a Christian teacher and you say, well, I'm not gonna, I don't believe that and I don't want to teach that, but I'm going to get fired if I do, so I'm just not going to say anything. They say, well, you can't do that because if you don't say anything, then you're going to be biasing the kids. You're going to be promoting a discriminatory bias by not saying anything, so you have to promote this. Here's the scariest part of this legislation. Parents will not be notified, nor will they be able to exempt their children from this new core curriculum. That's the law of the land, right? Freaky stuff. Now, a bunch of other Senate bills. Governor Schwarzenegger signed SB 543 in 2010. This one's freaky because it allows the school staff to remove children ages 12 and up from government schools, take them off campus for counseling without the the parents' permission uh, or their involvement whenever alternative negative opinions are expressed regarding homosexuality. Now, this means even in the course of a context of a discussion in your child's classroom, if they say, yeah, you know what, I don't believe that. My faith teaches different than that. My faith teaches that homosexuality is a sin. Technically, according to this law, these these teachers could say, we're going to take you to our own counselor without consulting your parents off-site because your your behavior is uh, not promoting reflecting adversity or it's it's promoting discrimination 
there's a bunch of other stuff. And, and, and you know, here's the thing. I haven't even talked about the legislation that, that covers, you know, all the issues with contraception. I haven't talked about the legislation that protects your kid's right uh, to get an abortion without telling you about it. How crazy is the land that we live in? Your child needs the parent's permission to go to the school nurse and take an aspirin, but they don't need your, parents, your permission to kill a baby in them, to go have such a a life-threatening procedure for themselves as well. They don't need your permission for that. We live in a crazy world. They just recently uh, legalized over-the-counter morning-after pills for for children. Your kids can go down there, no, buy it over-the-counter without your knowledge, without your consent. We live in an upside-down world. Now, here's what I want you to understand. Like I said, there's an ocean of this stuff, and it just makes you sick to your stomach. The legislation that I'm talking about, it's not limited to any state. It represents a much wider national effort to indoctrinate our children. I want to show you one more example. It's, it's, a, it's a video example from a gal named Melissa Harris Perry from MSNBC. Now, before you write her off as being just, you know, some uh, ill-advised news, you know, correspondent, Listen to her credentials. She's a professor of political science at Tulane University. She previously served on the faculties of the University of Chicago and at the University of Princeton. Uh, this gal, she, she, she's well-connected, and she reflects a much more organized thought process to indoctrinate our children. Take a look. We have never invested as much in public education as we should have because we've always had kind of a private notion of children. Your kid is yours and totally your responsibility. We haven't had a very collective notion of these are our children. So part of it is we have to break through our kind of private idea that kids belong to their parents or kids belong to their families and recognize that kids belong to whole communities. Once it's everybody's responsibility and not just the households, then we start making better investments. That ought to freak you out. There is a full court press, and I need you to understand this. Our battle isn't against flesh and blood. It's against principalities and powers. And the enemy wants your children. And now, I'm well aware. I see these things. I know the emotions that I have. My response to this is to say, we need to do something. We need to elect some different people. We need to change this legislation. And, And, you know... I understand that. I have long maintained that one of the biggest problems with our country is that Christians have, have, have isolated rather than infiltrate. We, we would rather stand on the outside and boycott rather than getting inside and affecting some change. And so I think one of the biggest hopes for our nation is that if Christians would start being Christians in their workplace, if we had more Christians in Hollywood, if we had more Christians in, the, in you know, all of the different arts, if we had more Christians in politics, if we had, I know it's an oxymoron, but if we had, more Christians going and and infiltrating the world, we would affect a larger change. But it's a mistake to start focusing on that and having that be our response to the things that we see. Because here's the big idea of Daniel, and you need to get this. What we see in Daniel's life and what we see in the life of, uh, of his friends is that they lived in a society that was actively seeking to brainwash them 
And they held strong. That's the point. We need to be training and equipping not only ourselves but our children so that they remain strong and that they can, in the face of this effort to reprogram them, of this effort to steal them away, of the enemy's efforts to take them and to to teach them his language and his culture and his delicacies and partake of his wine, that we instead can train up our children so that they can, in the face of all that, Honor God. And that's exactly what we see here with Daniel. Continuing in verse 8, here the king wants to do all these things. He wants to teach them the language, the culture. He wants to feed them his delicacies. He wants to change their name. Verse 8, but Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now, being a faithful Jew, Daniel, along with his companions, they were committed to strict dietary laws as an exercise of their faith. The Lord set it up this way. Now, the purpose was to maintain a clean and undefiled life before God. That's the point. Now, Daniel lived during the, the, the time uh, looking forward in faith to the coming Messiah, and he lived under the requirements of the law. This is why it was so important for him to do that. You and I, we now live under the, the new covenant. We don't live under these dietary uh, requirements, As Christians, we've been set free from dietary requirements. Paul said to the Galatians that these laws were given as a tutor to bring us to Christ. In other words, when those of the Old Testament were in these, you know, under these laws, the whole point was to point to their need for a savior. The whole point and the whole idea was to say, you know, look, you need to, you need to be clean. You need not to be defiled. And, and then the person would try and, and do all of the things that they had to do in, in the exercise of the law to be clean and to be righteous. And, and then they would discover, I can't do it all. I'm not perfect. And that, the, the whole idea there was to say, yeah, that's why you need a Savior. And this is what Paul says in Galatians 3. He says, therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. That when we would try and meet the the righteous requirements of the law, we would get to the place where we say, I need help. And God would say, yes, you do. His name is Jesus Christ. He died on the cross for your sins, in your place. He paid the penalty that you could never pay. And you need to trust in him by faith. You need to trust in his completed work on the cross. And so these men, Daniel and his companions, they lived during a time looking forward to faith by the, of the coming Messiah. And so as an exercise of their faith, they were under these dietary requirements that we are not. But there's much that we can learn from this in the sense that Daniel says, I want to maintain my righteousness here in the midst of a crooked and a perverse generation. Here in the midst of a generation that's actively trying to turn me away from God, I want to stick to the requirements. And so he, he says to this guy, listen, don't, don't, don't have us partake of the king's delicacies. Let us stick to this diet that, that we have to eat as, as obedient followers of God. Now, verse 9, now God had brought Daniel into favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. How did he do that? 
Because Daniel lived an obedient life. See, when you obey God and you live a life that's obedient to God, God will bring you into favor with those that you come in contact with. This is, this is not you know, universally true in the sense that some people are going to hate you because you're a Christian, because you bring a tremendous amount of guilt to them just by virtue of the fact that you're living a righteous life. But what you will experience, this is a general truism, that if you're an obedient follower of God, You're going to find yourself in favor with the people that you interact with because an obedient follower of God is a good citizen, is is a a nice person, is a person that treats others well and, and worthy of respect. And so God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. Verse 10, and the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my Lord, the king who has appointed your food and, and, and drink For why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who are your age? And then uh, you would endanger my head before the king. Look, Daniel, why am I going to feed you just vegetables and water, which is what Dan's going to talk about here in a minute. Why am I going to feed you that? Um, You're just going to be, you're not going to be as healthy as these other guys. And then it's going to cost me my life. The king's going to hold me responsible. So Daniel said in verse 11, to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be examined before you and the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies as you see fit Uh, And as you see fit, so deal with your servants. Here's what Daniel's saying. Daniel's saying, look, I'm confident that if you test me in this, God's called me to do this, and if I do this, I'm confident that if you test me in it, you're going to find that we look fantastic, that we look better than all the other people, that everything's going to be good. Why? Why? Well, because this is the righteous requirement that that, that God requires. See, if I live in obedience with the way that God instructs, I know and am confident that that it's all going to work out. I know and am confident that this is the best way because God said so in his word. Now, how could Daniel say that so assuredly with such authority, with such certainty? Because he'd been there before. Daniel had tested it himself. See, that's a, it's a huge important point that we need to live lives that obey God and that, that put his, his commands to the test in, in action. The Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good. How will you know that he's good unless you taste as he commands you? You know how many times you try and get your kid, hey, try this. And they're like, no. You're like, trust me, you're going to love it. No. You know, my, my grandson Jude, he's famous for that. You've got to sneak it in there, and then you realize, oh, it's ice cream. It's good. Yes, I want, he wants the whole bowl. And we're like that with God a lot of times. It's like, would you just do what I tell you to do? You're going to find out that it's the truth. And Daniel had lived his life this way. When I was uh, growing up, there was a, a beach by my house, and, and um, it, it, 
the Army Corps of Engineers had built a rock jetty going out because the beach was eroding the way the tide kind of came through. So they built this rock jetty, and what it did is it kind of caught all the sand that the tide naturally wanted to erode and wash through. It caught so that it started building up the beach, and that's what they were looking to do was to preserve and build up the, the beach sand. Well, it did something else in the process. What would happen is during the summer, the kelp beds, which were off of Palos Verdes Peninsula, because of the warm water, some of them would, would die and, and lose their, their, their leaves and all. And so what would happen is this would accumulate just a massive amount of, of, of seaweed. And we're talking four or five feet deep and sometimes as far out as 100 yards, just a solid mass of seaweed. Well, what we discovered when we were down there, you know, diving and spearfishing and all, was that it worked like a perfect net. And so it would catch all kinds of stuff. We would find masks and snorkels. I found an underwater flashlight in there. We, it was just, it was like a goodie find, man, whatever you're gonna. So we would walk through this stuff. And most people, it's slimy and, you know, freaks people out. But we would go through it. Now, here's what we found out. One of the things it caught really well was money, cash money, bills, singles, fives, tens, twenties. We would walk through and it'd come because people would go out and they would swim and snorkel or whatever it is, surf, and the bills would come out of their pockets and it would get all wound up in the seaweed and would come down and then the agitation of the waves, every so often a bill would just float to the surface. And so it was just, you know, pick it up. So a buddy of mine's over at my house. He says, hey, you want to go down to the beach? And, and or I said to him, hey, you want to go down to the beach? Uh, and and uh, we'll get some money. He's like, eh, I don't feel like it. I'm like, I just told you we get money. You don't feel like it? What are you talking about? I don't feel like it. I'm like, come on, man. It's just down there waiting for us. And so I said, listen, I am so certain, I am so confident that you're going to find money down there. If you don't find 20 bucks, I'll give you 20 bucks. He's like, all right. We go down there, we hit the jackpot, man. I mean, we're stuffing money in our, in our pockets and all, and I got, just, I got bills everywhere. I come home, I lay them all out on my bed. They're all wet. And I've got, my whole bed is covered with bills. I look like a counterfeiter. You know, my dad comes walking in. He's like, what's going on here? So I tell him the story I just told you. My dad looks at me, he's like, what are you doing home? Get in the Jeep, man. So, so we jump in the Jeep. We run back down to the beach. We're getting more. Now the lifeguard's in on it. He comes down. He's like, what are you guys doing? We tell him. And so he's, you know, wow. And some guy comes walking up. He's like, what's going on here? Lifeguard's, oh, no, no, we got serious business here. You can't come down here. <laughs> we were making money hand over fist. See, here's the thing. I was so confident because I'd done this. I'd done this a lot. So I could tell my friend, look, if you don't find 20 bucks, I'll give you 20 bucks. We found hundreds of dollars that day. It was amazing. I mean, I should go down there again. I'm just thinking about it. <laughs> it's fantastic. I told you I grew up in San Diego, right? So, yeah. <laughs> South Bay. Anyway, so it was a great time, good time. And uh, the point here is Daniel has tremendous confidence. He's in this place where he can say, look, this, test us in it, man. Because I've lived this in my life. And that's the exhortation for us, man, is that we need to taste and see that the Lord is God. We need good. We need to trust him. We need to live our lives in an obedient fashion so that we can say to other people, look, you know what? T- put me to the test, man. Try it and see. God's good. He's faithful. He takes care of me. And, 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 and here's what I want you to see. Just, just, this is so critically important. 
what I, what I want you to see here is that Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. That phrase, purposed in his heart, it literally means set and direct. Set and direct. He, he set and directed his heart in such a way that he said, I'm not going to defile myself. God has told me that this is the way I need to live. I've set and directed my life in, in a fashion that I'm going to be obedient to him. You know, my, my son Scotty was, was uh, an actor for years. He was in, in the film industry. And what they would do there on the set is they would take the, the, the director would get all the, the, the actors together. He would, he would set up the, the shot and what they would do is, and he would direct the rehearsing of it, and, and they would go over and over again to make sure that everything was set and directed so that it went according to the script. And as a matter of fact, on some, well, on, on every production, they had what's called a, a script supervisor. And the script supervisor's job, they would sit off camera with a script, they would listen to the actors, and they're following along in the script, and they want to make sure that the integrity of the script is followed. Now, some productions, they kind of allowed for a little ad-libbing or, or a little paraphrasing, and so as long as you conveyed the general idea of the text, you know, that, that, was, that was cool, and, and that's a little more freeing way to act. Other productions, like when Scotty was on Seventh Heaven, their script supervisor was like, you're going to say every word the way it's scripted. You had to memorize that thing. And, and Daniel here, he, he had that kind of a script supervisor. He's like, man, every word matters. And, and so we are going to set and direct. He purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. I'm going to do exactly what God says. Paul said this to the Romans. He said, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The world wants to conform us into its image, to press us into its mold. And Paul says, don't let the world press you into its mold. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be set be directed, follow obediently to God. And I want you to notice as we close what happens here. Because Daniel, man, he tells this guy, you put us to the test. I'm set and directed to obey God and I'm confident because I've done this before that if I do this, you're going to see in my life the integrity of God's word. You're going to see it lived out and you're going to see that, that what I'm proposing to do is right and appropriate, and I'm positive this is what you're going to see. And so he consented with them, verse 14, in this manner, and tested them ten days. And at the end of ten days, their features appeared better and fatter in flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. Thus the steward took away their portion of delicacies and the wine... Uh, that, they were ate, that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. It's going to factor in very prominently in the chapters to come. Verse 18, now at the end of the days when the king had said that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them before Nebuchadnezzar 
And then the king interviewed them, and among them all, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they served before the king, and in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in all his realm. Thus, Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus. I close with this. I need you to hear this. See, not only are we undefiled by the world, and that's what we're called to be. We're called to be that person that purposes in our heart, that set, that set and direct our hearts to say, I'm going to honor God. I'm not going to allow this world. It's got an agenda for me. It's got an agenda for my kids. I'm not going to allow it. I'm going to resist it in the sense that I am going to maintain, set and direct my direction of following obedience to the Lord. Not only will we, will we be undefiled by the world if we do that, but, and you can write this down, our witness is also undeniable to the world. Our witness is undeniable to the world. See, I want you to note the outcome of what David did. He didn't compromise. They excelled in everything that they did. And the king examined them and found them 10 times better than the others. Why? Listen, their true identity remained unchanged. Their true identity remained unchanged. Will you notice there with me in verse 19? What the Bible says, who the Bible says the king interviewed. Who did the Bible, who did the king interview? Well, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He didn't, he didn't interview Belteshazzar. He didn't interview Shadrach, Meshach, or Abednego. No, who the king interviewed was Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He interviewed God is my judge. He interviewed the loved of God. He interviewed who is as God. He interviewed the Lord is my help. These are who he interviewed. And what he found was they were 10 times better than anybody else. Listen, trials and hardship are inevitable. And there will always be outside forces and events that are stronger than you and that want to hijack you and that want to hijack your family. How will you respond? That's the question. How are you going to respond to this? And what's your identity going to be through this? Now close with this. In Acts chapter 20, Paul called the Ephesian elders together. And he says, listen, guys, I'm not going to see anymore, and I'm heartbroken over it. Here's what I know. I've been through great hardship. I've been through great trial. And now the Holy Spirit says that I'm going bound to Jerusalem. And I don't know what awaits me there. Only troubles and hardship and trials await me because the Lord has told me so. And here's what Paul said after that. He said, but none of these things move me. You're going to be tried, you're going to be assaulted, you're going to be attacked, and they're going to try and take your kids. What's your identity going to be? And will these attacks move you? That's the question.